شغل حرية كرامة وطنية Employment, Dignity, Freedom That's what our revolution wants Welcome to The Women, a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Every episode, I sit down with one person who has journeyed to do the extraordinary. And as this is the week of International Women's Day, we're expanding our regular episode, and I'm speaking to several women from around the world. Aya Shebi. Being young and being female is like double crime, yeah? Senator Alice Higgins and Senator Colette Kelleher. To be a sexually active woman was a subversive act in itself. Executive Director of the UNFPA, Natalia Kanam. And it's really, really important to remember that the same hands that build a problem can dismantle the problem. Jayathma Vikramanayaka, the UN Youth Envoy. But that really made me shift my mindset about the way that we look at humanitarian settings to really acknowledge how resilient young people are, but how resourceful they are in times of crisis. Mary, the Crown Princess of Denmark. Every minute a woman dies during pregnancy or giving birth as a result of complications that could otherwise have been prevented. From Tunisia to Ireland, Panama and the U.S. to Sri Lanka, Denmark and Australia, I had the opportunity to interview these incredible tour de forces from around the globe in Nairobi, Kenya. We all attended the Nairobi summit last fall where more than 10,000 people came together to demand and work towards gender equality. The United Nations Population Fund, or UNFPA, along with the nations of Kenya and Denmark, co-hosted the event. It was the 25th anniversary of the 1994 meeting in Cairo, where more than 170 governments committed to making women's reproductive health and rights a priority in national and global development efforts. This agenda on gender equality is often referred to as the International Conference on Population and Development, or the ICPD. I had the opportunity to interview six women in front of live audiences. And in this episode, you'll hear excerpts from those interviews. My name is Aya Shebi. I'm the uh, chairperson, uh, African Union Commission Special Envoy on Youth. Aya Shebi is the first ever African Union Special Envoy on Youth. Aya grew up in Tunisia, and between 2010 and 2011, she was live tweeting and blogging about her accounts as a teenager witnessing and participating in her country's revolution. Part of it, I started a political blog called Proudly Tunisian because I was frustrated with the mainstream narrative of the media that calls it uh, the Arab Spring, the Jasmine Revolution, the Arab Awakening, as if we were sleeping, we just woke up to rise for our rights. Um, Aya is a recipient of the Gates Award. She's a Fulbright scholar, and she's the founder of Africa Youth Movement. She's been traveling across the continent for the past decade, training thousands of people on activism and leadership. Aya is committed to mobilizing Africa's youth to act as a collective, to fight poverty and corruption, and to demand innovation and representation. We spoke in front of a live audience. Can you tell us more about uh, the African youth movement that you've been so a part of and you really have mobilized? A big part of your work, you traveled around the continent training and supporting many to, to join the movement or to articulate their feelings or find their voice. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? You know, after the revolution, I have found my African identity when I volunteered in the refugee camp on the Tunisian-Libyan borders, when I met migrants from different African countries. We're the most youthful generation. Uh, we are 65% under 30 on, on African continent. We're the youngest in the world. And so it didn't make sense to me. Two things didn't make sense. One is, why is that we have the same challenges on the continent, unemployment, uh, corruption, you know, you name it, inequality. We're not uniting. Uh, around these issues to have collective solutions. And the second thing is we have this demographic power. We're the most youthful population. So why are we not uniting in one voice? That would be more, more powerful. Because if we decide to, to create a political party, we will win the elections. <laughs> yes, we are 60% of our yes. population. If we decide all of us to vote anyone in, we can. Vote anyone out, we can. So, so the part of creating that movement is a solidarity, that we should come together as a generation, define our mission as a generation, and work together to find solutions as Africa, not as an individual 
tiny countries. We need to put Africa first before our you know, national or regional interests. And that's the idea, because at the end of the day, if Africa develop as a whole continent, we, we will be a global player, we will advance as a continent, we will trade with each other. And part of why I'm, I am at the African Union, and I think I am at the African Union in a very historic uh, moment because we just entered into force the CFTA, the Continental Free Trade Area, which makes Africa now the largest trade bloc in the world, uh, which makes uh, free movement a possibility. So the Africa we want is borderless, it has the African passport, it it's e-governance, it's e-citizenship, it's uh, studying in Pan-African universities uh, among our countries. So all of that would not be possible if Africans do not meet and know each other and know each other's challenges and unite around, uh, while respecting our diversity around collective action. When you're mobilizing such power and such a force and the strength of your generation, as you've pointed out, there is such a strong youth contingency on the continent. What was an obstacle that you experienced advocating for young people which you didn't expect and how did you tackle it? I didn't expect, I mean, I expected everything because <laughs> being young and being female is like double crime, yeah? <laughs> in every single room. I think I want to live in a world where I'm not the only young and female in a, in a, in a table of decision-making. We still have the story of African youth in conflict, you know, as perpetrators of violence and so on. And that's why they're not invited to, to be at the table. And I think what I'm excited about is that we are bold to say that we're not asking for permission anymore. We're not uh, asking to be given a space. We are, we're going to occupy this space. But I think also part of what I do at the African Union is to promote this intergenerational co-leadership. So it's not also saying that uh, you, the elder generation, do not understand our issues and you need to all get out and we want to take over. Or the elder generation saying, you are a threat and you are this dangerous class and you go to the street and you challenge the status quo. It's to say, it's time for co-leadership. We cannot inherit a system we don't understand and you cannot lead without understanding our reality and from our perspective. Intergenerational co-leadership is essential for Africa. So average age of African leadership is 66. This is according to Mo Ibrahim Index. And average age of the population is 25. We have 40 years of generation gap. The leadership right now does not reflect our population. And the, and the solution is not to just, yes, to challenge the status quo and to say we need to have more young people involved and participating, but also to say we need to co-lead. We need young people in parliamentarian seats, we need young people in governance, we need young people in pu public and private sector, not just as volunteers in political parties, not just as youth wings, but in the leadership. What do you think are some of the biggest challenges that are facing the youth uniting on the continent? Um, how can we overcome that? And what's next for you and what you want to tackle? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think the biggest, uh, see, I always say our generation defined what we want in the revolution, which started in Tunisia. Employment, dignity, freedom. That's what our revolution, our generation wants. Uh, in the 50s and 60s, they always say our mission was political freedom because we were fighting colonialism. Today, we want the same Pan-Africanism that liberated us 50, 60 years ago to liberate us from poverty, to liberate us from corruption, to liberate us from bad governance, to liberate us from gender inequality. But if I wanna like, put everything in one thing is inequality. Whether it's gender, whether it's economic, whether it's at the governance exclusion level. What's next and how do we deal with that is, as I said, to look at each other as citizens in a borderless space. Because if we talk about identity, young people today do not recognize too much the national identity. We think beyond, you know, we, we are more open to multiculturalism. We are, we are more open to spaces where we can learn from each other. We can innovate. So let's use that space. Let's channel the energy of young people who are angry, legitimately angry about the situation today of climate crisis and inequality to channel that energy into a positive action whether it's in policy, whether it's in grassroots work, whether it's in governance. Uh, what we do at the African Union now, we have a, a range of issues that we're working on that is defined by our agenda 2063. It has seven aspirations. It is clear about what we want as Africa. And, seven, and aspiration six is about a, a continent driven by its youth and women. So we have all the frameworks we need. We have the African Youth Charter. I don't know how many young people know about the African Youth Charter. I see many African youth here. 
adopted in 2006, one of the most progressive documents on youth in the whole world. So Africa is actually leading and it's thinking ahead in a futuristic way. All what we need to do is to use those instruments to work at the national level, at the grassroots level, to reach our collective goal. You know, 70% of Africa is offline. So you have the, the digital power to make noise at the media level, to make noise to, you know, at, the, at the social media level, to make Africa story become the mainstream. You've said that your father has been a big supporter of yours and a huge inspiration to you. Can you describe that relationship and what you both do to nurture that? My father is a feminist, but he doesn't identify as such. <laughs> I guess like many fathers, uh, I think what my father did is he allowed me to make my own choices. So I, I grew up in a fairly Muslim conservative family, uh, religiously conservative. And so I think uh, I disagreed with my father on many things and we argue. He's, he's a military guy. He spent his uh, 40 years in the Tunisian army. Uh, but he just allowed me to make my own choices, even if we disagreed because of he used his privilege as the head of the family in the extended family to back me up during the revolution and activism. Activism is not easy for parents to accept when they know that you are at risk and you are at the front line of making change. Uh, during the revolution, I didn't see my father for 10 months. Uh, he didn't know anything about what I was doing if I was on the streets uh, because he was in charge of the refugee camps on the Tunisian-Libyan borders when Libya revolution started. And so we had about a million refugees uh, on the camp. I would, I would call him and hide and be like, um, yeah, I'm, I'm studying. You know, the revolution happened in, in my graduation year. Um, and so it was like end of December, we were preparing for exams. And so I would call him, I'm studying, I'm home. He would never hear, you know, protest. But after 10 months and after uh, we already, you know, made the change in Tunisia, he, um, we had a moment, an intergenerational moment where he said, you, you did the revolution, you did the change, you as a generation. We have waited so long for making a change and for bringing a new spirit, uh, you know, and, and a new ways of, of looking at the future and how we construct our countries. So that's, that is my relationship with my father. Now he retired uh, just two years ago, which is good. Now I have more time to argue with him on politics in Tunisia. Um, but he's, he's of a great support uh, to me to continue my activism globally. You can follow Aya's work and learn more about the African Union on Twitter at Aya underscore Shebi. That's A-Y-A underscore C-H-E-B-B-I. When people told their stories and people saw, this is a difficult decision women make, these are the real circumstances. A lot of those who are seeking abortion, it's not just teenagers, it's, yeah. it's mothers who already have children. They're making a decision for their family. In 1983, Ireland adopted the Eighth Amendment to its constitution, which made abortion illegal. Alice Higgins and Colette Kelleher became senators in 2016, so the repeal on the Eighth Amendment was one of their major campaigns. There are two examples of women who took positions in government in Ireland and used their own voices and their most personal stories to reach across the aisle and the church to ensure equal rights for women and to expand access to safe health care. Okay, so uh, my name is Alice Mary Higgins. I'm an independent senator in Ireland. And I'm part of the civil engagement group. And I also worked on kind of equality issues, economic justice issues, and environmental issues before uh, going into the Senate in 2016. Alice Mary Higgins is an Irish independent politician. Her father is the current president of Ireland. Colette Kelleher is an Irish independent politician. She's a former social worker, and previously she was the CEO of the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. I'm from rural Ireland. I trained as a social worker and I've had many, many roles in the NGO sector. Very surprisingly to me, I was nominated by the Prime Minister to be a senator. Senator Higgins and Senator Kelleher worked on an initiative to break the stigma. Women from across Ireland came forward with their own stories and out of the fold, neighbors, moms, sisters, told their families about maybe a difficult decision that they had made or someone that they had helped. And it wasn't just families having these honest conversations. Even politicians came forward and shared their stories, whether personal or someone close to them. And oftentimes they even went to their conservative colleagues' homes to talk to them one-on-one -on -one about the urgency of expanding women's health care. 
I know a lot of the referendum was one around kitchen tables where people talked and I, I was very moved as well. I remember meeting older men in rural Ireland who the cliche would tell us that they weren't going to support this referendum. But what they told me was, I never knew the reality of my mother's experience. I never knew the reality of my wife or my sister's experience or even my daughter. But now my granddaughter is telling me what her life is like and she's telling me the decisions she's making. And I want to support her because I love her. In May of 2018, the Irish people voted by two-thirds majority referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment. So it was amazing to be in Parliament at the moment when that changed. I spoke to Senator Higgins and Senator Kelleher in front of a live audience in Nairobi. Well, so much of sexual reproductive health and rights has been for so long in the private sphere and has been taboo to talk about. One of, I think that what's reflective in both of your work and your journeys is really trying to tackle conversationally what is taboo and what isn't so you can really champion the rights and the advancement of sexual reproductive health. Senator Kelleher, um, you wrote a very personal article uh, prior to announce your advocacy to repeal the ban on abortion. And you wrote about a time when you were 21. Would you tell the audience about that experience, where you were with your life, and what were you thinking about? Well, um, Ireland in the 80s were, were a very dark place in many ways. We had, you know, uh, the death of a, a young woman giving birth in, in a grotto. You had the Kerry babies, which was a, a famous case where a woman was accused of... Uh, it was actually an investigation into police corruption, but the woman went on trial. Uh, she was accused falsely of killing a baby. So I was actually working in Tralee at the time. So to be a woman, to be a young woman, to be a sexually active woman was a subversive act in itself. And it was a very dark place. I remember getting my contraception from the Irish Family Planning Clinic in Tucky Street, but you would literally kind of sneak in, you know, in case your neighbour would see you. So it it was a difficult time. And then, you know, women were getting pregnant, friends of mine got pregnant, we all had the telephone number because it was in Cosmopolitan uh, so that you knew that you could get to London if you needed to. And then at one point in Ireland, there was a ban on even giving information out, uh, which was, you know, really, really, it was, the, you know, the ultimate kind of theocratic state, you know, blocking even the very access to information. And then I went to London when I was 26 and there was a group of us and we got involved with an informal network where we would meet women who'd come from Ireland and we'd meet them in train stations and they'd come and stay in our houses and we'd help them with the decision that they had made to have an abortion. But you were just under the radar all of the time and you didn't really talk about abortion in mixed company because you didn't trust that you could trust the people that you were speaking with. So the whole kind of opening up of the conversation for me but also for everybody else. When I was involved in the campaign, women were coming up. I, was, I had a pitch on Patrick Street in Cork and I used to give out leaflets there. And like mm. women came up to me and told me stories they'd never told anybody else in the course of the abortion. So there was a great lifting of the lid on the reality of women's lives, uh, my life, other people's lives. And I think that was the great change. And I think we were all so amazed at the scale of the vote in favour. But because we were all afraid to speak to each other about it, we didn't know that so many people felt so similarly. So that was a really a wonderful thing. Senator Higgins, could you give us a little bit more context of, you know, really what is going on or what was going on in Ireland Uh, in terms of women's reproductive health care prior to the ban? I think one of the most important things was people starting to to break the silence. Now, what was really powerful and really important were people starting to tell their stories. The case that I campaigned on back when I was in the 90s was the X case. And then we had the, you know, we had the Y case. And we had people B and C and D and these almost anonymized stories of, of women who are having to go through the courts and seek their rights. And that story and that a real face of a real person had a huge impact. 
And since then, there was an extraordinary... People found ways to tell their stories. I was mentioning last night a story I think I really liked was In Her Shoes, where young people, young women in particular, led this. They photographed feet and told their stories. Because, of course, when something's illegal, you can't tell your story. So then you just have the cliches, the version, the propaganda of what abortion is. And when people told their stories and people saw this is a difficult decision women make, these are the real circumstances, a lot of those who are seeking abortion, it's not just teenagers, it's, yeah. it's mothers who already have children, they're making a decision for their family. All of that reality of experience. And uh, again, there were one or two individuals who came and told their stories in the media, and, and that was incredibly important and powerful, including those who had to seek abortion for fatal fetal abnormalities, for example. We can listen to the reality of medical decision-making that happens in a crisis situation. We can listen to the reality of women's lives and make a compassionate decision. So the recommendations that those 100 people made yeah. were far further than we might have thought. They said, they recognized, for example, that you can't decide, you know, that rape in itself, uh, how does a woman prove that in 12 weeks, that we needed to give that 12-week space for women to be able, without judgment, to access abortion, for example. And then in the Oireachtas Committee, when it came to the Parliament, and we had another conversation, cross-party conversation, and extraordinary women parliamentarians from a lot of different parties made sure that the focus was on giving the reality that abortion does happen. Just because it's happening in the UK, it's still happening. Just because it's happening in secret, it's still happening. And that really the conversation isn't about whether or not you as a person like the idea of abortion, whether you would ever have one. The question is whether you want to have an honest state where every citizen can be honest about their experience, where people can have honest conversations with their doctors, even that conversation previously had been constrained, where women couldn't speak to their doctors, doctors couldn't really know, people are giving advice in the most obtuse way. So it was just about honesty. And, and that came out in the campaign and it came out in the conversations. I mean, what you both are talking about, really there is, um, on one hand it's a burden and on the other hand it's a relief to hear these really personal stories because you can't use a slogan or a campaign or a party identity when it comes to an individual. You know, the image of women taking photographs of their shoes and sharing their stories or of older women, wives, mothers, aunts, sisters, finally being honest with their husbands who maybe have been Uh, protected from the harsh realities of not being able to get good medical care and not being able to exercise your right. You know, the the first woman that stayed with me in London when, you know, had come from Ireland, like she was a mother of six children. And when was this? This was in 1987. And, you know, she was so not the stereotype. What do you Uh, mean by that? uh, You know, there's always, you know, young, feckless women going off and getting pregnant. She was she was the mother of six children. She, her husband was just made unemployed. They couldn't afford the seventh child. And she was the first woman to stay with us. And then we had women from all sorts of backgrounds. We had a, a woman who was the niece of a bishop uh, and was absolutely frightened to death. I mean, I even hesitate even saying it now in case in some ways I'd compromise her identity. So... None of the stereotypes applied, you know, in that work that we did with the Irish Women's Abortion Support Group in London. And as you say, once you got beyond the pro-choice and the anti-choice and the stereotypes and people grappled with the real, real stories of real women in different situations at different times, then the whole conversation changed. Um, how do you give advice to those who are in legislation who may lose their seat by advocating for women's health and women's right to choose? And also, what was the most compelling argument for faith leaders? I mean, really, the Catholic Church's power in, in, in Ireland has waned. So the difference between 1983 and, and 2018 was, you know, there weren't powers in the land in the way that they might have been 
uh, before, but, but, but wouldn't have had the sway that they had before. Uh, as I said, I'm not a practicing Catholic anymore, but many people are, and it gave people courage. So I think you have to assess where the faith leaders are at. Um, so in terms of the issue on, on faith, I think one of the key things was that this is not actually about your faith. It's not uh, women and women's pregnancies aren't, though they are obviously within the Catholic Church, symbolically important. They're not symbols. They're real realities that go through months and go through. So I think for people to see that this isn't a badge, the very fact of knowing that it was a real reality that happens within women, within their bodies, that made a difference. But that you could have your faith and you could be somebody who says, I know I won't make that choice. That's different from relating to others, you know, and from stopping others. So you might say, for a lot of people, and this relates to the rural area as well, one of the most powerful things we saw in the committee was not those who went in already knowing their view on this, but we had some, including some older men, uh, women from rural constituencies who came, who heard the evidence, and who said, I have changed my mind. I still have my faith. It's still, I still even regard myself as pro-life or whatever, but I am not going to stop, stand in the way of medical care, of essential rights for women. You can follow Senator Alice Higgins on Twitter at A-L-I-C-E-E-I-R-E and Senator Colette Kelleher at C-O-L-E-T-T-E-K-E-L-L-E-H-E-R. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Look, this world has more money than ever in human history. It's incredible how much money there is in the financial institutions. And yet we have never had so much poverty and inequality. The United Nations Population Fund, or UNFPA, is the UN's sexual and reproductive health agency. And their mission is to deliver a world where every pregnancy is wanted, every childbirth is safe, and every person's potential is fulfilled. They do census data, and they provide care to women and youth in over 150 countries, and they train healthcare workers around the world. The UNFPA was one of Nairobi Summit's three co-hosts, and I actually had the opportunity to interview its executive director. The executive director of the UNFPA is Dr. Natalia Kanam. She actually has a degree in medicine and in public health. She's worked in philanthropy, and she's done some extraordinary work championing the rights of girls and women over the past few decades, and most currently, leading the UNFPA. The UNFPA is committed to delivering health care in some of the world's most remote places, whether that's flying in contraceptions via drones or talking to a midwife in Mongolia. And as the executive director of the UNFPA, Dr. Kanam is also one of the undersecretary generals of the United Nations. So why don't you introduce yourself and um, tell us what you do and why it's important to you. Rose, I just want to thank you for leading us through this exercise. It's a little awkward bearing your soul to one and all, but I think it's important. Uh, it's really great to have felt the support, the fact that you made your way here. I lead the United Nations Population Fund. The initials do not match the name. In fact, the Population Fund still works on population. We do census advising in over 155 locations, but our brand is really the United Nations Sexual and Reproductive Health Agency. As the executive director of the agency, I'm, I have a nickname that comes with the job, which is ED, and I also have the power of being an under secretary general 
to Antonio Guterres, who, as Secretary General, has said that he is a proud feminist, and part of his goal is to bring gender equity into the United Nations. So while I look at my own fantastic colleagues, and there are 3,000 plus another 2,000 consultants of us over these 150 plus locations, I also am expected to look upward and to help the Secretary General achieve the three truly noble purposes of the United Nations, which was founded on the principle of dialogue and world peace. We have three pillars, and one of them is uh, peace and security. Sustainable development is how we would phrase uh, the second pillar now. And the fundamental pillar is human rights. The other thing I should say is that in leading this agency, it puts me into direct contact with some of the worst, most horrible problems that you can ever imagine, but also with some of the best, most wonderful, uh, heroic people who are in an island community somewhere or they're at the top of the mountain that you've got to take the horse or the donkey to reach. And so you're also really privileged with being touched by the understanding that any one of us really can make a difference. This gives me a lot of courage. Um, and it certainly has been an eye-opener. It's a job where you learn something literally every minute. I believe that in 1975, you attended a conference in Mexico City that actually impacted you in a very powerful way. Um, what was that experience? Well, yes. Um, in 1975, I took a bus, I took a train, basically walked to Mexico City, where... Uh, the first World Conference on Women was taking place. And it was amazing because I'm from Panama, so I've had the experience of an immigrant child. And at that time, I was actually in one of the premier academic institutions of the world. I was a scholarship student at Harvard University where I was studying uh, history and science, and specifically the history of Latin America and Africa. And uh, for science, I was interested in tropical medicine. There was an atmosphere of caring, solidarity, wanting to solve problems. You know, when I got to uh, Ciudad Mexico, it was exciting. I didn't, now I'm a world traveler and it's getting to be a bit much, but then I really hadn't traveled. But I did feel that this exhortation to do something practical you know, meant something to me as a medical student. Um, you are uh, the first Latin American and Afro-descendant to lead your department, UNFPA. Do you think that this experience influences the type of leader that you are? Oh, yes, I do. I do. I think um, it's important for my experience as a woman, as an Afro-descendiente woman, as an immigrant Afro-descendiente woman, and as somebody who is, like I said earlier, acutely tuned into discrimination, you know, I am very willing to advocate on behalf of anybody else. The African Union claims African descendants as the sixth region. Right now, Africa is the richest continent on the face of the earth. It also has huge human treasure in terms of human capacity. But the mismatch of inequality that the Sustainable Development Goals talk about is very prevalent here. With all the privileges of being of African descent, parenthetically, I always remind everyone that as far as we know, the first humans coming out of Africa, we can all claim a piece of our African descent. But in the modern construct of being African, it really gives you uh, the advantage of instant connection and also the advantage of paying attention to uh, how it is that you can make things better. Women also describe this experience because, you know, when we walk into the room, no one necessarily thinks that you're the executive director. So I'm really happy to um, represent for that dynamic. And it's really, really important to remember that the same hands that build a problem can dismantle the problem. 
for many people who go into medicine, it's because they have a calling or because they had maybe a formative experience in their youth, seeing the power of healing. Did you have such a thing, or what was it that called you to medicine initially? So I've thought about this question. I really don't know. I think, um, yes, my father died when I was young. I was six years old. I remember um, certain things surrounding that. Um, I have always had a high degree of awareness of things that are unfair. You know, like when you do those psychological profiles, I'm like off the charts for justice. I really want things to be fair. And um, I also am very interested in the, I'm glad you used the word healing. The idea of healing is that you're attuned to so many different dimensions of well-being. And I think that uh, many of us have that, but we haven't had the opportunity to express it. So I think healing in all its dimensions was attractive to me because it's um, a way of making things right for people who otherwise might not feel whole, you know. For me, um, I'm proud that UNFPA is, is a leader on innovation in our field, sexual and reproductive health and rights. So within the United Nations right now, we're trying to think of how do you capitalize and accelerate progress and all these other things that we're saying. And doing the same old things the same old ways is highly unlikely to get us to zero, 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 right? So What's zero, zero, zero? For the rubric that we use in terms of transformative change, we know that sex is difficult to talk about. We know that young people are actually discouraged from getting truthful information that you or I might share. It's looking at problem solving in a new way. And so the three zeros that UNFPA um, is putting forth has been a collaborative activity. The first zero is to ensure that there is zero unmet need for contraception because the evidence is abundant that girls, and I'm talking about an adolescent girl who can even be a married woman, really, at the age of 13 or 14, depending on what country you come from, should have within her power to decide about her own fertility. The term that we use, family planning, some young people even reject because they don't want to plan a family. They simply do not wish to get pregnant right now. So again, you know, I think for us, the unmet need symbolizes the power that a woman has to own her body the power that a girl has to say no, and hopefully the power that the health system is gonna have to be friendly when a young person comes in. Um, the second zero is to end death in childbirth. This is to me like a human rights issue. And the third one, of course we're gonna need huge innovation to overcome. And that's to put an end to gender-based violence so-called domestic violence is so prevalent, it's the biggest crime on the face of the earth. But these resources are on an unequal spectrum. Look, this world has more money than ever in human history. It's incredible how much money there is in the financial institutions. And yet, we have never had so much poverty and inequality. I will say that the only advice that I ever give anyone is to know yourself. What do you want to do? What is your capacity? What is your limit? And what is your bottom line? You know, you have to engage with your own self before you can trust someone else to bring you anything or do anything with you. And so ultimately, um, you also have to know that you can't fight every fight. You know, you can't like pick fights with people. If you're somebody who's going to stop, you know, rape and conflict, this is really difficult. It's going to be bruising for your own psychology. If you're kind of brittle and, you know, jumpy, how are you going to help some woman who comes in with a horrible problem? You know what I mean? For you to do your job with courage, you have to know yourself and to know who you're going to trust with your worst fears. For gender-based violence, I want us to figure out what are we going to do to really attack that third zero and come up with innovative, collaborative solutions 
that are going to work in your backyard. You can follow the executive director, Dr. Natalie Kanam, on Twitter at A-T-A-Y-E-S-H-E. We need systemic shift, systemic shift of a systemic political change, a systemic economical change, if we are to solve all these problems by 2030. And I think the only way to bring about that transformational systemic change is for you to institute that change from within. Jayathma Vikramanayaka was appointed by the UN Secretary General to be the UN Youth Envoy. She's originally from Sri Lanka and travels all over the world to bring the UN to young people. We spoke in front of a live audience in Nairobi. My name is Jayatma Vikramanayake and I am the UN Secretary General's Envoy on Youth. My job is to bring the United Nations closer to young people and bring young people closer to the UN. Um, so to do that, I advise the UN Secretary General when it comes to matters related to young people. I also represent him in meetings, conferences and other platforms that um, are about young people and do matter to young people's lives. So I work across all areas of UN's work. So I work on sustainable development, I work on peace and security, I work on human rights, and I work on humanitarian action as well. I was asked by the Secretary General when I started to help set the vision for the United Nations system to be better at working not just for young people, but working with young people. You are originally from Sri Lanka, yet you travel all over the world for your job. What do you think you bring with you uh, when you do travel and when you do sit at the table to have your voice heard from your home country? I usually bring two or three saris. (laughs) (laughs) I usually wear saris when I need good luck, and that's why I carry them with me wherever I go. Um, No, I think... It's, it's such an interesting question because it's the first time that I, in the last two years that I was asked this question. I think for me, being someone who was born to a war, my country, Sri Lanka, went through a 30-year-long conflict. Um, and I was born to a conflict and I lived 19 years of my life in a conflict-affected country, in a war-torn country, basically living through the fears of, you know, getting killed on our way to school or not maybe I won't be able to see my parents when I come back from school to home because there were bomb blasts um, in buses, trains, schools, markets and everywhere. Um, And that insecurity, um, I think, also helped spark my creativity and um, also helped me understand and still helps me understand a lot of the times when I communicate with young people who live in conflict settings and humanitarian settings, the same insecurities that they suffer with. So I think it helps a lot for me. I mean, it was unfortunate that I was born into a war-torn country, but at the same time, I think that has helped me be grounded and and really helped me understand young people's struggles. I also think it's really important when we talk about places that have conflict that we also remember the complete opposite side of the life and the beauty that goes on, especially in the private sphere within our personal relationships with our friends or our families. Could you give us an idea of what your home was like when you were growing up? Yeah, so I um, I was born into a working class family. So I come from the south of Sri Lanka, from Bentota. Uh, my mother is a teacher and my father works for the Ports Authority in Sri Lanka. My parents worked really hard to raise three girls. I have two younger sisters. I mean, it's, it was challenging, you know, it, it, it is a patriarchal society. So for an example, I haven't shared this publicly much before, but um, my paternal grandparents did not speak to my mother until me and my sisters were in our early 20s because my mother could not give them sons who will take the name of our family forward. So, but my parents, I think they never let that kind of discrimination or agony get to us. They always shielded us um, and sort of encouraged us to be our best. Um, Education, education, education is the only thing I would hear at our home, like from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to bed. 
as I said, my parents are not super educated or they don't do any like politics or any high level jobs. But every night when we had dinner, we used to watch news and then we would discuss what we saw at, on, in the news. And my parents would always also encourage us to tell or analyze what we saw. Like, but I also think in certain cases, in certain ways, I was also shielded from certain things. Like now when I learn about climate change, now when I learn about discrimination or gender-based violence, I now understand that, oh my God, I experienced that. Because when I was growing up, anything was better than living in the war, right? So you always uh, think that anything is fine as long as you're not subjected to the conflict or violence or that as long as you're safe. Um, so for an example, um, when I started learning about say like street harassment or sexual harassment, Literally every day in my life in the school bus, I have been subjected to some kind of harassment. Like 98% of Sri Lankan women have gone through street harassment, sexual harassment in public spaces. And I have experienced that, but at that point, I didn't know that I, I was living that, you know. And every night on the news, we, 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 we've seen how farmers commit suicide. But now I know it was because climate change. And it was because uh, they are, the farming patterns were changing, the harvest patterns were changing, and these farmers couldn't get enough produce, so they basically couldn't pay back the loans, so they were taking their own lives. But it didn't really make much sense then, but now when I listen to the stories of other young people from other parts of the world, when I read more, when I learn more, it kind of clicks and I, uh, I think, oh my God, this was that. This is what happened to me. This is what happened to my friend. Your missions take you, like I said, all over the world. Is there a trip that you went on recently that especially moved you, that made you really see the impact that young people can have on the world? Yeah, I mean, um, in the last now two, two plus years, I've been to more than 40 countries. Um, and honestly, every country is unique. But there's this common thread that is common to all of it. It is that the young people that I meet are so progressive, so forward-looking. They want to achieve tangible, concrete changes in their own countries. But I think one of the missions that moved me a lot was I visited, um, I went to Gaza um, and because of the blockade, young people there um, are suffering from various very, very challenging issues. Um, unemployment, 70%, 80%, um, with the risk of Unurwai schools being closed uh, due to lack of funding. So a lot of challenges, but um, they said they had something special to show me. And they took me um, in this, um, a building that was like clearly like bombed or shelled so you could see it's a, it's a ruined building and under that building there's like this basement I go like there's this dark um, kind of tunnel and then we exit the tunnel and I enter into a room and I see 50 60 young people sitting in this really cool area coding so say that again coding, coding. So like on they, the computer on their computers they call themselves Gaza Sky Geeks. So because unemployment rates in Gaza are so high, these two young Palestinians who used to live in, in, in New Jersey moved back to Gaza and they started this lab where these young people come, learn to code, learn to develop software, learn to do things online. And they find gigs online. And they work for companies based out of Washington, D.C., Indonesia, Nairobi. And that's how they earn a living. That's how they find employment. That's how they contribute uh, to their society, to their families. So when we think about Gaza, we have this very gray picture of a you know, bombed place, suffering from a blockade, like people are desperate, looking for food and water and um, opportunities. But that really made me shift my mindset about the way that we look at humanitarian settings to, to really acknowledge how resilient young people are, but also not just how resilient they are, but they're also how resourceful they are in times of crisis. So it was a moment that I was, I was shocked. I started talking to them. I started sitting down with them and sort of going through what they were doing. But I think that is one of the best experiences I was privileged enough to have uh, in, in this position. So many of us, we know exactly the change that we want to see in the world, but we're not exactly sure what that 
role looks like or what that job looks like or what that organization looks like. And one of the resounding themes that I feel like I've heard from interviews here is learning on the job. Like no one trains you to be president or to be a minister or maybe to be a youth envoy, but you learn as you go. Is there one skill that you feel you've been developing that has really like made you flex, made you stronger in your job? Yeah. When I was in university, I was very active in the youth council. I co-founded co a youth organization in Sri Lanka called Hashtag Generation. So I've always learned things by doing them. Uh, but also I found my passion by doing things, not by education. It's not because I learned international relations. I was interested in the global youth development agenda. It was because I was doing youth work at the country level. I got interested in the global youth development agenda. And as you said, you know, when I was in high school or university, this did, job didn't even exist. And there are so many jobs that will not exist today, but there will be in five years, 10 years, 25 years. So I think as young people, what we really need to do is acquire the right attitude so that we are open to learning. We are open to learn to learn. What do you think is that one action we can take or a either a change in our vocabulary or a change in the way that we implement change? So we are very good at staying outside of the system and complaining and protesting um, and, you know, holding leaders to account. But I also think that it's so important that at least some of us try to penetrate the system, try to get into the system, try to get into the political parties, try to get into the parliament, try to get into the cabinet, and be that voice of change from within. Because we've seen how so many movements come into being, so many movements have been able to topple governments, sometimes uh, let autocratic leaders go home, but then, if you look at those instances and see, did we actually sustain change though? Did we really make a difference? Did we really change the system? These cannot be changed by just trying to approach one issue one time. We need systemic shift, systemic shift of a systemic political change, a systemic economical change if we are to solve all these problems by 2030. And I think the only way to bring about that transformational systemic change is for you to institute that change from within. You can follow Jayathma's work on Twitter at JayathmaDW. That's J-A-Y-A-T-H-M-A-D-W. But it's not just about being here, it's about being heard being listened to, being taken seriously, having space, having a place, and, and being part of the decision-making, the policy development, the programs, whatever it may be. It's being part of the team on an equal standing. I had the opportunity to speak with Mary, the Crown Princess of Denmark. Her Royal Highness has been a patron of the UNFPA for almost a decade. Many may be familiar with the woman who met a prince in her home country of Australia and moved to Scandinavia to assume royal duties. But as the patron of UNFPA for the past decade, she's been a member of the high-level task force on the International Conference on Population and Development. She's undertaken field visits to UNFPA programs across five regions, and she's participated in numerous events, amplifying the voices of disadvantaged girls and women around the world. As a patron of UNFPA, her Royal Highness has been a vocal advocate for some of the core issues to the advancement of gender equality agenda, most notably as they relate to maternal health and youth and humanitarian issues. When it comes to closing the gap on gender equality, Her Royal Highness has said that, quote, we must ensure that no one is left behind and all voices are heard and reflected in our solutions. I spoke with Her Royal Highness in front of a live audience in Nairobi. Now, my story started about uh, yeah, almost 10 years ago uh, when I was at a conference and I heard the words, when a woman gets pregnant in my country, she has one foot in the grave. And these were the words of an obstetrician, Dr. Condigo, an obstetrician for Chad. And at that time, I was shocked, very disturbed to, to learn that... Um, you know, every, every minute uh, a woman dies during pregnancy or giving birth um, as a result of complications that could otherwise have been prevented. 
Um, now, it saddens me also that today, 10 years on, that um, yes, we have made progress, the numbers have been reduced, but there's still too many women, over 800 a day that lose their life giving birth or being pregnant. Um, now, maternal mortality is just one of the most, uh, perhaps, is one of the horribly unjust uh, symptoms of inequality and lack of respect for the human rights of women and girls. In 2010, I became patron of UNFPA. So I'm proud to be patron of an organization that enormous progress has been made in the last 25 years. But we are experiencing an, an increased opposition, maybe a better organized, better funded. That is why one question I keep asking myself is why is it so difficult to make progress on this agenda? What are the barriers that you, in your work, are facing? Are they new barriers? Are there barriers that you've been fighting for a long time? And the complexities of the arguments against what maybe, I mean, there's maybe some in this room that aren't totally uh, with the ICPD program of action. We need to talk about it. We need to have an open dialogue about it. We need to extend our conversations. We need to broaden the people we speak to because it's only together we can find a way forward. And we have to be courageous about that and dare to do it. And we also can maybe look at how we talk about these issues. Are we using the same existing language or are we, which is important that the language stays as it is, we, we're not losing any language, but what is the context around the language? Are we speaking in the wrong type of context to the wrong type of audiences? Another thing which I am incredibly passionate about is youth involvement. But it's not just about being here, it's about being heard being listened to, being taken seriously, having space, having a place, and, and being part of the decision-making, the policy development, the programs, whatever it may be. It's being part of the team on an equal standing. I'm not going to call myself old, but from um, another type of leader <laughs> to another type of leader, because age is not important, and that's why we need to close that generation gap. What are the challenges that you face out there when campaigning or advocating or pushing for change? And how did you overcome that obstacle? In my role, I often get um, shielded from uh, some of these challenges. One of the, the biggest challenges I experience is, is on my travels. Um, and when you're in uh, humanitarian situations, in refugee camps, one of the greatest things we can do to improve the situations there is to have a gender focus on how we make our humanitarian responses. Um, and I know there is a good, there's a lot of great thinking going on there, how we can break down the silo mentality, create cross uh, interdisciplinary um, teams so that when these camps are needed and begin to be built up, they're built up the on, from the ground with a gender focus. And that can be UNFPA's um, reproductive health centre that is part of the, the solution because women continue to give birth also in crises. And this fight for gender equality, especially as a human right, can you give one example of um, when you've seen it done well and the positive impact it can have? Yes, I've seen, I've seen many examples of when good interventions work. It's um, ensuring the sustainability of them that, and the scalability of them that's often even harder. Uh, which one will I pick? I think um, I'd have to say Tosten in Senegal for their work with FGM. I had the opportunity to, um, to visit uh, a Tosten village. And as part of my trip to Senegal, I participated in a, um, a ceremony where 50 villagers, because it, a village alone can't say no because of intermarital um, traditions. So 50 of the villagers came together to announce that they will no longer cut their girls. And that change came from a new place of knowledge, as I said before, but also the fact that they woke up 
one day with this new knowledge, but also with a new fact that we have more men than women in our village. And the reason why we have more men than women is because we are cutting our women and girls. And that was the realization, that was the point of no return, where that practice, although it has been so culturally important for us, is no longer viable for where we want to go as a community, as a population in the future. You can learn more about Her Royal Highness and her work and follow the incredible work of the UNFPA on Twitter at UNFPA. You can also subscribe to their newsletter and meet more incredible women like Aya Shebi, Senator Higgins, Senator Kelleher, the Executive Director Natalia Kanam, Jayathma Vikramanayaka, and Her Royal Highness. Every guest that participated in this special episode for the International Women's Day edition, I met at the Nairobi Summit hosted by Denmark, Kenya, and the UNFPA. The Women is a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Holly Fry is our executive producer. This episode was mixed by Adrian Lilly. Special thanks to Nora Kipnis, Michael Freeman, Sabine Jansen, Casey Pegram, and the iHeart team, and especially Gail Reed. And a very special thanks to Etienne Loya, Mandira Paul, and the team at UNFPA for making these interviews possible. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend. We want to share these journeys and stories with as many women and girls as possible in 2020. And... Happy International Women's Day.